Hi, this is Celeste from Me After Work and welcome back to um, You Don't Know What You Don't Know Until You Know, our podcast. And today we have Mariette. Rups Donnelly. Rups Donnelly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mariette's a senior executive coach, a speaker on influence, presence, presentation and media skills. And I've personally known Mariette for five years. We met at a... Executive Women Australia lunch. And Joe Hockey was speaking, I remember that. And yeah. we did presentation skills coaching. I did that. I had a couple of sessions with you. And um, I always get nervous actually being around you because I have to watch how I pronounce words more than ever with mm. anyone else I know because you have the best pronunciation of words. But I still have words that give me problems. Yeah, okay. One of them is that wonderful word, intermittent. And I have to really think about it before I say it. And uh, another one is surprisingly the word objective. I sometimes slip through the B and the J. They're there, but they're not clear. I know nobody else can hear it except for me, but I know it. So if you've ever done any coaching with Mariette or Connected, you might be privileged enough to be on her text message group and she sends some tongue twisters just to get your words flowing and the energy and... Do you want to give us some tongue twisters that you would send? (laughs) Well, the standard one is ones are the ones that you probably learnt at school, like red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. But there's some other doozies like Irish wristwatch, Irish wristwatch, Irish wristwatch. Um, Irish wristwatch. There's a really nasty one called that that goes the sixth sheep's sixth sheep's sick. The six sheeps. The six, sixth sheeps. Sixth sheeps. Sixth sheeps. Okay. Well, what's the purpose of the tongue twisters? It's, well, the tongue is a, a massive muscle and it does a huge amount of work in articulation, but it's not the only... Um, articulation, unit of articulation. You've got your jaw, you've got your mouth, but the tongue is the thing that really does most of the work. So things like red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather is about getting your tongue more flexible so you can get it around words. Irish wristwatch, that's for your mouth. Do you know in the King's speech when he's told to take up smoking... Would you ever advise that to any of your clients? No, 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 no. But but I understand the purpose. And it always used to interest me that people were addicted to smoking because I have this little theory that if you just smoke on a pencil, you'll get the same effect because smoking is about deep, slow breathing. So people tend to smoke when they're under stress or they feel like they've worked hard or as a reward. So they stop and they take a moment to have a good, slow, long breathe in and exhale. Now, you can do that with a pencil as well as you do with and a cigarette. And save $40 on and a pack save of $40 and save yourself nicotine addiction because then, <laughs> nicotine addiction, because then nicotine it becomes um, the reason you smoke. When you see people present, what's one of your pet hates? People who, (laughs) this is funny, there's a few, but one of them is people who gesture for no purpose. So often instructions, instructions are given to people that they need to move more or they need to do some more gesturing. So they do things that have absolutely no relationship to what's coming out of their mouth. And there's there's one and we're, so there's we're a on podcast between their physical body and, their, and the words. Is yeah. that because they they're preoccupied with creating physi- like physicality or well, well it's for lots of reasons. You'll see some politicians use what I call the emphatic gesture. So they're telling you gesture, both hands telling you something. But they use it on every word. <laughs> I know we're we're on a podcast here and you can't see me, but I've got my hands pointing towards Celeste. They're flat hands. They're going up and down and up and down on every word. The whole idea of an emphatic gesture is that it emphasises something. When you emphasise every word or every syllable, it loses its effect. Do you think Donald Trump's a good presenter? He's, an, he's a clever presenter. He's very, very clever. He's, um, he's got a lot of the skills of influence down. Mm-hmm. He's got a couple of get dead giveaways. For example? Well, when he... You know how he does that little sort of 
thumb and forefinger thing together to make a point. Um, rather than pointing, he holds his thumb and forefinger. I can't say forefinger. Holds his thumb and forefinger together and makes a point with that. If you notice his elbow, it's tucked in. It's very precious and petulant. That's a giveaway. It's it's very concerned with himself. It's not concerned with an audience. Oh, okay. But that that would be um, subconscious, him doing that. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the stuff, he does a lot of open hand gestures and inclusive work and so on, which is all very clever. And, of course, the language he uses is is directed towards a particular group of people um, to get a particular response. Uh, And on that level, uh, he's a bit dangerous. (laughs) Who Who are some of the great speakers you've seen? irrespective of what position they hold in business or politics? I like speakers for different reasons. You rarely get the whole package. I'm I'm trying to think... What do you mean by that, the whole package? Well, somebody who is absolutely congruent, so everything they say is congruent with how they say it so the their voice their voice is working well with the language their body is moving with the language so the body is totally responsive to their thoughts and their feelings and um, the energy they uses they use uses the energy they use shifts and changes so they um they're always Engaging us on emotional level, it, 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 you really get that. Someone like Simon Sinek does it quite well. Um, Anthony Robbins, of course, does it well, but he's highly practiced at it. And having had a little bit to do with that organisation early on in my speaking career, he warms up and practices a lot. He's he's very good at the do sort you of think speaking. You he can does. risk becoming too polished. You don't want to be polished. Polished is not real. Polished, the word polished means to me that it's a little bit slick, it's a little bit practised, it's a little bit overly planned. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't plan and it doesn't mean that you don't practise. The skill of a really good speaker is they look and sound as if what they're saying is being said for the first time. It's also the skill of a great actor. Yeah, okay, even if it's not. Because I did some work with TEDx and the speakers go through a lot of training. Yeah. You know, when it comes time, showtime, how do you get out there and still connect in a natural way with the audience, even though you've rehearsed potentially 50 times, you know, plus? Well, you have to have rehearsed a lot so that it becomes second nature. So you're not thinking about what you're doing. Your focus is totally on your connection to the audience, your message, and getting a response from them. If you are working on the audience to get a response from them, then you're working in the right place. Mm. It's never about you, ever, ever about you. And I think you taught me that, and that was the most liberating thing ever, because when you do get up there on stage and you have to deliver a speech, you realise that even if you are nervous or you get things wrong, it's so secondary to the message and to the people yeah. that are yeah. receiving it. Yeah. I mean, people are not... A lot of people will say to me, oh, I don't like standing up in front of people and they're all looking at me. They may have their eyes on you, but they're literally just waiting to hear what you have to say. You might get the occasional people who's going, oh, I like that dress or I don't like that dress or something like that, but that's irrelevant. Once you start speaking, they're really focused on what you're saying and the message that you can give and how you can help them. So if your focus is also on that, then you're in a really great place. What about for impromptu presentations? Mm-hmm. You, you, there's no time to practice in, in a working environment. You can get caught up, you know, in front of the t- the, all the business or in the boardroom or even at a conference if you want to ask a question. How do you do that? And Well, let me take you back to the conference and you want to ask a question. Have you ever asked a question at a conference where you haven't beforehand thought how you were going to frame the question? What words you were going to use? Uh, a good chance. I've asked a lot of questions. I try to test myself a bit. Of course. But I'm just trying to think. That's a good question. Because before we ask a question, we think about the question and we 
work it out a little bit. We may not have it perfectly, but we work out what we think we would like to say, or at least how we're going to begin, and then we allow ourselves to continue. I'm a bit prone to saying there's no such thing as an impromptu speech. The best impromptu speakers do not waste time saying to themselves, oh, my goodness, what am I going to say? Oh, 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 I've got to speak. You've lost 10 seconds. A good impromptu speaker, if they've only got 10 seconds, will take their time to get to their feet. They've already worked out how they're going to begin and they've already worked out maybe a little story that they know anyway or one or two things that they want to say and then they run with it. But they're already planning. So does that mean you have to be a super fast thinker? No, it just means you've got to get your brain in a good place. You can waste a lot of time going, oh, oh, oh what am I going to... Oh, 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 I've got to say something. I, you haven't got that time. Okay. That's sort of self-indulgent, if you know what I mean. You, you don't have that time. If somebody says, would you like to say something about this? Get to the point. Yeah. Yes, I would. And I'm thinking as I'm going that I'm going to say, thank you for asking me to say something about Celeste. She's been working with me for a long time and I think I know a few things about her she may want to hear or you may want to hear. And then you're already on a roll. Once you're rolling, if you've got a story about something that you know, then you've got something that sits in your brain anyway that's not that hard to to put into a, a small presentation. When you're impromptu, nobody expects you to deliver the great presentation. That is a skill. You will sometimes see people stand up and just deliver. Just deliver. But those people are often practicing that skill. Mm. No, but some politicians. Charismatic and and, yeah. But they don't they don't let the they don't disenfranchise themselves by getting so nervous that they can't breathe, so they can't get oxygen to their brain. They're they're clear and they're thinking and they just trust that that will work. But they know that because they have practised it a lot. They have challenged themselves in that space. Next week we've got a speaker talking about confidence Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to ask you, what do you think confidence means? What does it mean to you? Confidence... Confidence to me means the ability, for me, the ability to do something even though I feel like I'm dying or I'm shaking in my boots. Confidence for me is not necessarily something that you feel. It has to do with feelings, but confidence is knowing what I have to do to make myself appear confident which will then make me feel more confident and running with that. Okay, that's a, that's a good lead into another question I had is, can you fake confidence? Do you know, really, I don't think you can. I, I, know, I know there's information out there. Because your background's acting. Yeah, yeah. Actors are always terrified. When it comes to acting? Yeah. Even in the role? Yeah. But don't you put yourself in the role... Have you ever seen an actor standing side stage? No. They're they're not thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm terrified, but they're doing a whole lot of stuff physically and vocally that is going to keep them in a good place so they can work well, and including mentally as well. So that affects your emotional state. Anyone who's doing anything that challenges them has to be nervous. Otherwise, they're complacent and they're not going to work at the best level. So sometimes you're more nervous and, and scared than other times, but you, you manage it. You manage it. Now, once you get into the play and you're running with the play, you're using up all that nervous energy so it dissipates and you're using it up by performing. But initially, it's there and you, you learn to manage it. I, uh, and they're not faking. They're not faking confidence when they walk out on stage what they're doing is using their body and their voice in such a way that it exhibits confidence so if you do that your body and your voice have an impact on your feelings and on your thought processes so and it works the other way as well so if you if you use your body and your voice well then you will feel more confident and you will uh, 
think of yourself as stronger, so therefore you will appear confident. So you're not really faking it. Everything else is working. When you see people faking it, they're largely saying to themselves, I'm fine, I'm confident, I can do this. And as soon as you hear that in a voice, yes, yeah, yeah, I'm good, that's fake. And we know it, we read it. What current themes or trends do you see coming up? Oh, everyone is so different. But I see a lot of senior people who've put off having coaching for a long time or they have had a lot. I have one very senior person who said to me, I've had so much presentation skills training and I still can't do it. So there's something missing. What is it? She said, I know you can tell me. And what it is really is that everything she's been trained to do is on the surface. It hasn't, yeah, this is about behaviour and and you can't tell someone to be more confident. You can't tell someone to speak more slowly because that's unnatural. But if you give them the skills to manage themselves so that everything is working in a very confident place, then they'll feel more confident. If you give them voice technique that manages the way they speak, they will naturally speak slower. If you use your voice well, you speak at a reasonable hearing pace, even if you're nervous. So it's technique and understanding technique and also understanding what gets in the way for people. Everybody has a different block. Mm. What are some of the blocks that you've found? Because they're the light bulb moments when you Mm. realise a block you have Mm. and that you can actually get through it. Well, sometimes they're not blocks that you understand intellectually. I was messaging a client this morning and um, she said, was a woman, she said to me, great presentation Monday, same presentation Tuesday, not so good. I was racing. So I, I said, so what was happening? What was happening with the audience? What was happening with you? What was, uh, who was in the audience? I asked her a whole lot of questions and she came back and she said, well, one was the first one that I felt comfortable with was much more intimate. It was a smaller group and I felt like I could have a conversation. The second one, I was in a much bigger room with many more people and I couldn't quite have that conversation. That makes absolute sense to me because... In the smaller room, she felt that she was close to people and engaged with people. In the larger room, I guess she felt she had to be a bit louder. She had to use a microphone, which added a couple of barriers, and she couldn't have the same sort of conversation. The conversation should be exactly the same. What's different is the technique. So in a larger room, you need to be more expansive. You need to be able to use your voice more expansively and you need to be able to use your body more expansively so that it still feels comfortable, but you're still talking at the same conversational level. And a microphone is just an added um, assistance point, if you like, or an added prop. But you can only do those sorts of things with practice. Hmm. So you've got to get used to be able to working more expansively or not quite so expansively. Uh, and, and But the blocks are all different. I mean, the big one is always, oh, I hate being the centre of attention. And you always come back to it. It's not about you. Never about you. Uh, Do you think um, the lack of presentation skills or ability holds people back in their life? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Not just in in business, certainly, it's very clear because the higher up the rung you go, in a corporation in particular, which is my main area of work, the higher up the rung you go, the more you are rec- required to not just speak in front of groups but influence and get people on side, be, engage people in what you want them to do. And if you can't do that, then you're missing a whole piece of your skill base but in life the ability to be able to enter into conversations with people to have an opinion to express an opinion to deal with it if that opinion is not acceptable to people to be able to argue a point to be seen as as confident and strong that helps you don't have to be an extrovert by the way this is a cross-introvert-extrovert 
area. Sometimes we're a little more extrovert, sometimes we're a little more introvert. You have to know how your energy is working. And when you can, if you don't like putting too much energy out there, when you can pull it back and look after yourself and when you need to put it out there. Extroverts, people who are in the more extrovert space, they have the opposite thing. They have to know when they need to contain their energy and when they need to allow it out. You'll often find that extroverts can get or feel they can get a lot of what they want by just being out there all the time and it doesn't really work for them and they can't see that. It becomes exhausting. It's exhausting for everyone. For them too. For them too and for everyone else. And then often they're not allowing anyone else into the space. It's all about them. And and that that can be problematic. Do you if you have a client like that, do you how do you address that? Sorry, it's not all about you. No, it's, it's very, you have to be very careful. I had this wonderful man as a client for quite some time. And we were in, <laughs> he, he was what I call a pushed personality, push energy, and he could overtake conversations, massive amounts of energy. This man was a serial entrepreneur, so he was very good at what he did. And about partway through the first session, I said to him, I was talking about being grounded and, 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 and he said to me, yeah, but Mariette, the conversation, the conversation only starts when I arrive. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I walk into a room and everybody stops and looks at me and so they want me to engage with them and entertain them. He said, so I do. Everyone waits for me to do that. He's a performer. Well, not really. See, that's not even a performer. It's a, actors don't necessarily behave like that. What he's doing is he walks into the room with so much energy. People are having conversations all around that room, but he enters with so much energy, everybody stops and looks at him. He then interprets it as, oh, I have to entertain. Ignoring the fact that people had already been occupying themselves quite happily before he arrived. And it's, it's that, and, and I, it took me a while to explain it to him and to shift the behaviour a little bit. You're never going to shift it, well, that's not true, you can. With someone like him, you weren't going to shift it completely because he was a bit caught up in his own world. What's some of the big shifts you've seen in people that you've worked with? Oh, people who are absolutely terrified of speaking and now speak regularly everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, terrified to the point of panicking, panic attacks, crying, that sort of thing, when they had to speak and now out there speaking. People who, um, where do, well, sort of deadly boring, I, I don't mean that really, but, but are not engaging or interesting. A technical talk. Under, yeah, yeah, suddenly understanding, a technical talk, suddenly understanding story and how to engage people. And, you know, I mean, a P&L sheet is a story. It's a story of the health of a business. You have to understand story. And when they get that, they start to see the world differently. Part of my job is to help people see information differently. Where did the fear of public speaking come from? Where does it come from? Oh, And it's so rife as well. So many people have the fear. Yeah. I think, look, I think there's a lot of things that feed into it. Uh, one, many of us have perfectionist tendencies, so we like to get things right and if we get things a little wrong in public we feel that intensely I think in this country in particular we have so many phrases for showing off oh okay you, know, you mustn't boast it's the tall poppy syndrome don't don't think you're better than anyone else don't have tickets on yourself don't be up yourself don't be precocious don't be this it goes on and on don't show off you know, don't draw attention to yourself. So then suddenly when we stand in front of an audience, all that lifetime of information weighs on you. And you're doing, in one sense, not completely, but in one sense what everybody's telling you you shouldn't do. And also when somebody, when they're young, if somebody gets up and speaks quite well, they're often put down for it. We don't necessarily encourage it. I've worked with so many uh, young adults that have come through the school system 
and they had to give a speech at school and there'd be you know, 10 people at the back making jokes about them and laughing and the teachers have not done anything about it. Now, I, I, I'm a teacher, so I, I rather like teachers and I think they've got a massive but very important and influential job. And if they allow that to happen, part of their job is not being done. However, they may not have noticed it either. But this young kid standing up the front of this audience sees class members giggling behind their hands or and they don't know what it's about. They don't know if, if their flies undone, they don't know if they've got food in their teeth or or if their dress looks funny or or if what they're saying doesn't sound right. They they have no idea what it's about. So why would you put yourself in that situation? What do you think is the difference between seeing a, a coach like yourself or doing Toastmasters? Oh. <laughs> okay, Toastmasters is a fantastic organisation. I've, I've never been a Toastmaster, but I have spoken at their conferences and I've spoken to various groups. I think they have a program that's a good program and worth going through. But I can only say from client experience that they, some will not join Toastmasters because they feel that what they want, Toastmasters can't give them. So that very individual attention, uh, very specific feedback on certain things and also then how to work with those challenges they have. Every Toastmasters group is different. So my suggestion is if you want to join a group like Toastmasters that you trial a few, make sure you fit in a group, make sure that they're giving you the feedback that you feel works for you. Yeah, because feedback is so subjective. Yeah, feedback is totally subjective and it's also, it requires a certain level of knowledge to give good feedback that someone finds useful. It goes back to what I said before, telling somebody they need to be more confident or they need to have more authority or they need to speak more slowly is not great instruction. It's right, perhaps, but that doesn't tell them how they do that and it's the how that becomes important. Mm. And I suppose people come to me to understand how. Because even when you see, or personally from my experience, when you start critiquing a speaker, some of it is a projection of you, of what, of you and yeah. how you think. Yeah. It actually has nothing to do with them. So, critiquing anyone or taking feedback, you, you've got to be careful with it. You, you don't want to take it unless it's, I think, from a connection or a relationship that you're in a space and that person knows what they're talking about. I, I, look, I have to agree with you, and, and teaching actors for as long... I, I was an actor originally, and teaching actors for as long as I did. You're always looking at an actor to find what it is that's getting in their way of giving you what you think, what you would like from them, and then how they specifically are going to be able to do what you want from them. So you're always trying to find the right language and the right techniques and the subtleties of shifts to give them instruction that's going to work because you're trying to get the best out of them that they, they can possibly deliver at any time. And it's a really individual process. And it's different. It's different for everybody. Who is one of your favourite actors? Oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> Kate Blanchett. I was just thinking about her, actually. I'm just why, why, why is she so good? Oh, her capacity to transform. Um, I've, I've watched movies that I didn't know she was in. And, you know, something's come up on television and then I suddenly go, oh, my goodness, that's Kate Blanchett. I didn't recognise her. Oh, I mean, the, the capacity to, to do that physically and vocally and, and be real at the same time. That is a real skill. Not every actor has it. Some actors do sort of versions of themselves, which in itself is fine. It's just a different form what of acting. What percentage of actors would do versions of themselves? Like Cameron Diaz. Yeah. yeah version look, of herself. I'd, I'd say the greater percentage of actors do that. It's really difficult to transform, to, to be able to be seen believably as somebody else entirely 
It, it really is difficult. You, you're because it's the only complaint. body you've got to work with is your own, and the only voice you've got to work with is your own. So th- it's a really it's a technical skill which you then have to turn into something that's totally authentic. And when you've only got your body and your life experience, and that wonderful magic magical what if? So that's always there. What if this happened to me? What if I did that? you're drawing on aspects of yourself that maybe you don't entertain in your everyday life. Some people's capacity to draw on that is better than others. I I think one of the greatest actors of this generation, and he's no longer with us, is Heath Ledger. I never knew him. Um, I had watched his work. I was incredibly distressed when when he passed. Because he was so young, because he had so much to offer, because obviously he didn't want to, it was an accident, but also because he has deprived us of something extraordinary. He was, what he could do as a young man was already incredible. What he was going to be able to deliver as he got older was going to be magnificent, and, and, you know, we won't see that. Do you think because he had no fear? That when you yeah, take I don't, all the yeah, fear I think so. away, you can actually tap in and disconnect yeah. or detach from yeah. what you think or your ego or who you are. And he wasn't scared of going places. He wasn't scared of drawing on, on some of the ugliest sides of his personality. He didn't seem to frighten him. Once more, I don't know the man, so I'm, I'm just talking from what I have observed of his work. But he just seemed to... He seemed to love the art form. I've read recently that he understood everything about uh, camera angles and lighting and he he really understood the art form in its entirety, not just as an actor. Wow. So he was obviously able to work at a, a very high level at the same time that he was acting, technically at a high level at the same time as he was acting, and he had the most beautiful voice. Ah. Exquisite voice. So, you know, I, I think Australia produces some of the greatest actors. That's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's partly because we don't... We try not to manufacture them. We allow them to be themselves. We don't try and fit them into a... Hollywood. A Hollywood mould or a Botox mould or, you know, we, we allow them. And I hope we as I watch this generation of actors, that they go the British path as they get older and, and not try and let themselves become beautiful older actors without trying to fit that Hollywood mould. Because I think that's that's dangerous. I don't judge anyone for doing that. I understand it. And why wouldn't you want to look fantastic your whole life, whatever fantastic is? But you look at Judy Dench and you look at um, Maggie Smith, they look amazing. But they're older. <laughs> Old, in fact. But they still look amazing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult path to walk. I'm sort of glad I'm not walking it. Let's change gears a little yeah. and focus on you. Because <laughs> our theme is you don't know what you don't know until you know. No. And... It'd be interesting to hear, you know, at a moment in your life or moments during your life where you had a realisation, whether it's through your coaching or even more recently when you moved to the Blue Mountains or you went on a trip around Australia with your husband, that you thought, I I never thought this five years ago or three years ago or two years ago. Like, something's changed in me. Yeah, golly. It's a big (laughs) question. It's a big question. I... I've been working in this presentation skills general field now for uh, full-time for 13 years. I was doing it a lot before that, but for about 13, 14 years probably now. And I I focused on presence and influence, uh, foray into negotiation and interviews, uh, on, on the skills and structure of content and understanding how we engage audiences and connect to audiences. But... In the business of it all, while I was away, and I was away for four weeks in the outback, and that sort of space does things to you. It's it's um, it's wonderful country. Did it feel? Did could you feel how big Australia? Oh yeah. Is? Oh yeah. 
well, I've, I've got photos of me dancing in the middle of the desert and literally you you could do 360 degrees and all you can see is horizon. You can't see anything else. There's nothing else there. And, um, and you'd be in that for days. You wouldn't just pass through it for three hours in the middle of the day. You'd be in that for days. Or the grasslands are like that too. You just flatten grasslands, the odd tree, and that's it. Is it the silence or is it the scenery or both? No, I think it's both. I think it's both. One, we camped out a lot, and one of the lovely things is is sitting out and, you know, you've made dinner, it's getting dark, and it's just so still. And the, you can hear the birds, you can hear the animals quite clearly, and the birds as they settle down. I mean, you can hear that in the city too, but, but that's all you can hear. Uh, it's... It just makes you stop a little. And I still had to work a little bit while I was away, but it, it makes you it makes you stop. And I I had expected to have a big <laughs> revelation of something because obviously I felt that I needed to move in different directions. But that revelation is not a moment in time. It's been an ongoing process. And much of it happened in the last couple of days, surprisingly because I'm regenerating my speaking career. I, I do speak, and often on topics, so on skills like presence and presentation skills and uh, voice skills, body language, those things. But I'm, I want to move away a little bit from speaking about those all the time and start to speak on things that... Um, invigorated me when I was younger, when I was teaching acting, things like play, understanding play, and how it, how you can find yourself through play, how you can find different ideas through play. And I'm, along with that, I'm fascinated by the shifts and changes in the world that is being disrupted constantly. So of course, Presenting is being disrupted as well. Now, originally it was being disrupted by the digital world. And I can remember going to conferences where you had a Twitter stream running behind the speaker and people were asking questions, running, and the MC would be exhausting as an MC, trying to find the questions and so on, until they realised that the Twitter stream was also full of, oh, you're here, where are you? I'm sitting up the back, I'll wave, and if you can see me, turn turn around if you can... And, and so people were having these private conversations in the Twitter stream that was <laughs> flowing down behind the speaker. So that seems to have stopped. Um, the, other, the other challenge, of course, with social media, when people are on social media all the time, they're not focused, so they're not really listening. Now, I make conscious decisions to go to a presentation with speakers I know or groups that I wish to support and consciously tweeting or putting stuff on LinkedIn, knowing that I won't be able to take in everything. But you see people in general tweeting and then, oh, Facebook, and they, oh, email. And so you they're not... the moment. Yeah, you miss the moment. You're missing it. So that interests me. How do we keep people engaged? And I was... I had a... Look, I've had a couple of wonderful meetings this morning. One with a woman whose knowledge of speaking... And, and the speaking industry is, is massive and I admire hugely. And she was talking to me about the things that I, the things that I do and how to take it into a bigger thing. And I, I, I wanted to discuss with her the future of speaking because I'd like to talk about where speaking goes now. And um, the other woman, I, and we talked about all sorts of things, team building, collaboration within the speaking world and so on. And the other woman I met with, is an agile expert and I said look I've thought about speaking on the agile speaker now what does that mean to you you she's in HR and she her name is Natal Dank and she was in Australia she's now in Europe but she comes back here and runs programs for HR departments on agile HR to support the agile workplace how appropriate yeah and it's brilliant stuff. 
and she speaks quite a lot. And so I was talking to her about what the speaking she sees at meetups and how we can transfer that to conferences and just talking around that with her. Uh, and I, I would like to find... Because the challenge always is if we start to disseminate or dissipate the focus on the speaker who is supposedly the expert then less information is going through and if everybody um, interacts with the speaker and and then is allowed to have their point of view come into play some of those point of views are only opinions they're not based with great knowledge so how do we manage this and yet allow the audience and the speaker to feel like they're getting somewhere something is being done so we had a long conversation on this and how the world of speaking is not really changing yet but is going to change i was at a presentation or a conference full day conference recently where they did some of those things they had a world cafe where everybody sat around and spoke and it was very successful but they also asked for people to post it note things on the like you do in agile meetings post it note things on the wall ideas they came up with takeaways they got and then they would refer to that there was about three post-it notes on the wall maybe more maybe five we're not ready yet do you think it'll just we'll just go a full circle well one of the, I, look, I don't know. One of the best speakers I, I saw, he was, it was at the World Leaders Conference, and I forget his name, but he was probably about 65 and he spoke about execution. He was, he, you know, an expert in his field, had worked with so many businesses. He got down, like, he was talking to 2,000 people, got off the stage, actually came into the audience. Yeah. He had a couple of a sheet of notes in his hand, no PowerPoint. No so engaging yeah I think I think personally that that's what it's about but knowing that because it really is about an, an, an emotional interaction that has information put through it see if you if people you can't just tell people stuff they won't do anything about it they have to feel something about it in order to do something so you if you can engage with them and connect to them then you are really building change with good information but we have this consistent digital interruption but you know can we multitask no no (laughs) and and uh, we can split focus we can't multitask i mean we we always say women always say oh well you know we multitask yes we do in other words we've got six things going on in the brain but we're not totally focused on one of them at any time and when we really have to do something properly we have to get rid of everything else and focus Mm. it's time wasting but the nature of lives nowadays means you've got to have one part of your brain in uh, I've got to pick up the kids from from preschool at such and such time. I've got to uh, deliver this. I have to remember to go shopping to buy dinner. And this is happening for men too. I have to remember to go shopping and get some chicken for dinner or some salmon for dinner or some tuna or whatever for dinner. And I have to... And we've got all these things going on which distract us. So, no, we don't multitask. And that's why when we're on our phones in presentations, we're not really listening. So play and agility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is in a way, where I belong. I used to run the... It uh, is oh. <laughs> on stage, play and agility. Yeah, totally, totally. That's, you're very present on stage. You're present for things that the audience respond to. You, you're present to the other actor. One of the great things about being an actor and working on stage and, and in film is that you know, you're never quite sure what you're going to get from the other performer. So you can do a, a play or a show for, for six months... And they can still surprise you. And it's not because they're actively going, oh, I'm going to surprise her tonight. No, it's because they're so in the moment, they're responding to what you give them. And you don't always give them exactly the same thing every night. So then you respond to what you get back. And this interchange happens. So it's really beautifully present. And it's, it's so exciting. Sometimes it takes you places you really don't expect. 
So that's one of the gorgeous things about it. But to be able to keep that play idea happening, that this is, we are in the moment, we are playing. It's not playing like a child. It's, it's something you have to teach actors when is they're... Is it like a lightness? Yeah, the unbearable lightness of being, yes. <laughs> uh, when, you, when you're teaching actors, one of the things I always used to do very early on in movement class was an exercise around the child in order to help them see that when they come into the space to play, it's not the child who's playing. It's the adult. The child will bring them to play. But so many actors, when they first start playing, play like little children, and that's not how you play. The adult plays, and that's the challenge initially. But once you get comfortable with allowing the adult to play... So is it play in your head versus... I know, it's still play everywhere. It's still play everywhere, but you don't have to be child... You you have to be childlike. You don't have to be like a child. Uh, and it's um, it's wonderful to see when it happens. You know, initially you see... You see actors sort of drop in age a little bit as they start, and then as they get comfortable with themselves, mm. they'll play as the adult. Do you think we're just all on a journey to become more comfortable with ourselves? Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. You know, I, I, well, getting a little older myself, and as you do get older, you certainly get more comfortable um, and more opinionated. <laughs> and more willing to express those opinions but um, yeah more comfortable that beside a long journey of understanding not just of yourself but of other people I I've had some real some things that have happened not massive but things that have given me pause <laughs> made me step back a little bit and think is that really? how I'm perceived, am I, do I need to look at that? Is that someone's opinion or is that something I really do need to consider? And I think that's part of the process. When you're younger, you're more likely to reject those moments. You're more likely to go, no, 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 I'm fine, it's all right. Because you have to. You're hanging on to a, a very small kernel of self. But I think you get a little bit more grounded in yourself as you get older so the the trip around Australia that one month was that a pause for you? oh yeah yeah it was the first big long holiday I'd had for quite a while and um, I was quite I was quite um, surprised at myself in my willingness to do, and my capability to just stop why surprised? Uh, because I work fairly constantly and I'm on the go a lot. I thought that I, I had to take my computer and I had to take my phone. I run a small business along with my husband, so we needed to be contactable. But once I'd done a couple of things that I hadn't completed, I was able to put it away and then just deal with it certain times. It does help that you have no connectivity. <laughs> no, it's surprising. You'll be driving through far north Queensland and um, suddenly your phone will light up. And you know there's a mine or an oil drill or a gas field or something. South Australia's the same, just nearby. South Australia, in fact, it was m most obvious, um, just nearby. And, of course, they had rather large field of... of 4G, which you would immediately connect into. Mm. So you very quickly check your phone, check messages, check calls, check emails, and go, right, fine, done. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> Let's keep going. And because um, we didn't stop for that, we just, I just went, okay, phone's on, <laughs> check everything, and then, and little towns, some very, you know, the smallest towns out there have got, have got 4G, so you can connect in. But then you just put it away and... 12 months from now, yeah. where will play and agility sit? Is that too far to... Oh, ah, I'm still mulling it over and formulating it. Where will they sit? Will you go back into working with actors? No. 
isn't that funny? I said that so strongly, and yet part of me would love to, but no. Um, teaching actors is a younger person's game. They demand an enormous amount of you emotionally, and so they should, because they're putting themselves through the ropes and you have to be there with them. Corporate clients demand certain amounts of you emotionally, but they're more in control of their own need, if you want. Young actors, by nature and by the work that they're doing, are needy, and you have to be there for them. So on that level, no. But also, I'm at a point in my life where if I went back to teaching actors, I would, I'd go broke. Teaching acting doesn't pay particularly well. So I, I wouldn't even consider it. And I, I really love what I'm doing now. Great. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose part of me says, would I like to act again? I, I'd never discount that. And I probably, more than anything, never discount singing again. I haven't sung in public for about four years. Um, and what I did four years ago was for charity. But I haven't discounted it, and so maybe I will, but maybe I won't. What I do now, I think performing and acting is a really important career. Telling our stories, opening our eyes to things that happen. Actors can do amazing things with the work that they do with very little support, very little financial support from anywhere. But now I'm working with people who are making change. And that change in this country is really important. So I'm very happy to support people so to that- take this country into the future. Actors, there will always be actors. There, is, there will always be actors. There will always be people coming through wanting to tell stories, wanting to do it. It's, it's one of those things that people desperately want to do. I'm dealing with people who are, have the capacity and the ability and the knowledge and the experience to step up and take the country into the future. But they just need some support. I'm happy to provide that. And inspiration, if I can provide that. And inject some play. And inject some play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have people skipping a lot. That's I've always done that, so that's not... But that's only a little bit of play. No. It's fabulous. Thank you so much, Mariette. <laughs> you are so welcome. It's been fun.